This will be my 25th Christmas here at Heritage Baptist Church. For 25 years, I have stood behind this pulpit during the month of December. And whether we started on the first Sunday of the month and, or, or sometime in between, I have preached what we call the Christmas story over and over again 25 times. Uh, as, as each year rolls by and we come upon the next year, I keep asking myself, what more can I say about the Christmas story that I haven't already said? Uh, is there something new? And the answer is, has come back to me, no, there's nothing new and there doesn't need to be. Man is always trying to change things and always trying to, if we, if we were in our vernacular, uh, perfect things. But when it comes to the message that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, it just doesn't get any better than that. And there's nothing that we can do that, that uh, can embellish that, nor does it need to be. But at the same time, I want that same old story to be fresh and new in our hearts. I want us to be like children on Christmas morning that just come downstairs and the tree is lit and the presents are there and their eyes are filled with wonder. Only we're not looking at a tree and presents, we're looking at a manger in Bethlehem and the greatest gift that mankind has ever had. And that is a savior that came down from heaven to save us from our sins. So I began looking in my Bible uh, this year, a, a little bit ahead of time, asking God to help me as I read through what we commonly call the Christmas story. There are four chapters in the Bible that are devoted to this event. Matthew chapters 1 and 2, and Luke chapters 1 and 2. I've heard people say, well, the early church didn't celebrate Christmas, and, and, and we ought not be celebrating Christmas, and I'm just like, hey, the people in Whoville need a visit from you. Uh, you know, get your green fur on and go on down and mess with them. You understand that God, God gave four entire chapters of the Bible and devoted it to tell us about that wonderful fulfillment of prophecy when God became flesh and dwelt among us. And it does, matter, it does not matter if Jesus was born in December or April or any time in between. Uh, all that matters is that God sent us a Savior, and we should rejoice in that, and, and I'm happy to do so. As I opened the Gospel of Luke, I find that Dr. Luke, as he was beginning to pen his, his gospel for us, look in verse number one, he says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely, uh, surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. So Luke is being prompted by the Holy Spirit of God to write a, a, an account to this man Theophilus and to give him a, a good sense of all the events surrounding the, the birth, the life, the death, burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Luke is the one that's going to talk to us about the angel Gabriel coming to Mary in that little town of Nazareth. He is the one that will talk about their journey to Bethlehem and the actual event of the birth of Christ. But that is not where he starts. He goes back just a little bit in time to talk to us about the birth of another baby, another little boy whose life would always be wrapped around intricately 
with the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is John the Baptist. And that is where Luke is going to start, and so that is what we're going to do this morning. And we're going to be introduced to this, this uh, baby boy's family and let it unfold for us the way that the Scripture records for us. Verse 5, as we read with Brother Carson, says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So the Lord is going to introduce the subject by talking about the parents of John the Baptist for us. He talks a little bit and tells us their position in that society. Um, Zacharias was a priest. He was of the tribe of Levi that was chosen by Almighty God to be the only tribe that could serve in first the tabernacle and then in the temple. His wife, her name was Elizabeth. She also was of the daughters of Aaron. So both um, Zacharias and Elizabeth were descendants in the tribe of Levi. Notice what the Bible says about their lives. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. These are high words of praise coming from the Almighty upon this couple. They were both righteous before God. They were not self-righteous. They were not exalting themselves saying, well, I'm not like so-and-so and I haven't done what so-and-so does. They were much in the category along with Job, whom God bragged on him and said, uh, hast thou considered my servant Job that there is none like him in all the earth, or a just man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. God is making a similar statement about both Zacharias and his wife. They were righteous before God. It is not what you and I think of ourselves that matters. It is not what you and I think of others that matters. It is what God thinks of us that really counts. God knows who is saved and who is not. In 2 Timothy, the Bible says, the Lord knoweth them that are his. We can pretend before other people that we're saved, but God knows whether that is pretense or whether it is a reality. God knows. God knows whether we're living righteous, not just in church and when we're around other people, but behind the scenes when we're, there's no one else to be around. David made the statement before the Lord in the book of Psalms. He said, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. God knew that of Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth, that they were godly people. But no matter how godly they were, they still had a problem in their lives. Please understand that nobody lives problem-free. When I was in Bible college, uh, the pastor of the church I attended, Dr. Jack Hiles, had a radio broadcast every afternoon. I'm sorry, every morning. And every time he signed off on the broadcast, he made the same statement. He said, be good to everybody because everybody's having a tough time. And it may be that uh, right now most things are good in your lives, and I, I would hope and pray that to be true, but we all know that sooner or later the storms are coming our way and the challenges are going to abound in our lives, and there's no one that is going to live exempt from that. And Zacharias and, and his wife Elizabeth, they were no exception to that rule in spite of their godliness and their character before the Lord. 
they had a problem. Verse 7, they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren and they both were now well stricken in years. That was their problem. That was their heartache. They had no child. In Bible days, we must understand that uh, to, to not be able to bear a child was, was often viewed in great disdain. And it was an unfair uh, assumption on other people, but they just automatically concluded that if a woman could not bear a child, that she must have done something and God was angry with her or she had been cursed by God. Even the, uh, the, the pagan cultures, as well as Jewish cultures, adopted this mentality. And of course, most young brides are always looking forward to the day when they're going to hold their firstborn in their arms. And uh, that, that is all a part of the dreams when we say, I do, and for better or for worse. We know the children are inherited from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. And we can go back in time and see Zacharias and Elizabeth as they stood before family and friends and they exchanged their vows according to the custom of their people and they became one flesh that they were always hoping that God would give them a child. They loved God. They served God. They were faithful to God, but it was not God's plan for them. We know they prayed about it in verse number 13 there's an angel that will appear to Zacharias, and we'll go back to him in a moment. But the, the words out of the angel's mouth to start in verse 13, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. Thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Now, thy prayer is heard. That means Zacharias said he'd heard his wife cry herself to sleep how many nights, hoping that this time there would be a baby and then that didn't come to pass and her heart would break. He would know that his wife could see the glances from the other young mothers and looking at her and wondering what was wrong with her that God wouldn't let her have a child. He saw his wife as the tear would trickle down her face when she saw a friend or a, 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 a relative holding their newborn in their arms and Elizabeth would try to be happy for them. But there's just a part of her that was broken hearted and said, God, why won't you give me a baby? I'll be a good mom. I'll do everything that I'm supposed to do. Zacharias will be a good dad. But that prayer was not answered. And time went by to the Bible says in verse seven again, and they were both now well stricken in years. The years had gone by, time had taken its toll, and they were elderly people, well stricken in years. Probably as it was with Sarah, it had ceased to be with, with Elizabeth after the manner of women. And humanly speaking, she was beyond childbearing years. It was not going to happen. I, I'm, I'm putting my own thought in here. Please understand this. I don't think Zacharias was praying for a child anymore. I think he'd given up on that. I, I'm, I'm thinking that that was the prayer of a young Zacharias, not the old man stricken in years. But the angel said, thy prayer has been heard. Beloved, you may be praying for something right now and it doesn't seem like God's listening. You don't have that answer in hand. But would you understand that our God is the God who heareth prayer? 
The Bible promises if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he heareth us. First John chapter five. And if we know that he hear us, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. We in this modern age are so instant everything that we no longer have patience and we do not know very much of what it means to wait upon the Lord. Even though the Bible says they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. We do not like to wait. The psalmist said, wait upon the Lord. Uh, wait, I say, upon the Lord. It's in there twice. David said, I waited patient, patiently for the Lord. You know, you know why he had to wait patiently for God? Because God didn't answer him right away. Didn't answer him right away. But he said, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. This day, Zacharias is going about business as normal and he has no idea that this day is gonna change his life. That prayer that he has long stopped lifting up because it has long since been an impossibility for him, all of a sudden he's gonna find out that God heard him all along and that God was actually gonna do something about it all along and he was gonna find out that his God was always faithful. Wasn't that a wonderful song? And as Natalie ended every single verse, I won't get the words exactly the right. Uh, she loved the Lord with all of her heart and strength and might because God was always faithful to her. Zacharias is about to find that out. But at this point, as of verse number seven, here's an older man. Here's his elderly wife. But I want you to notice that they're still serving God. I'm sure they were disappointed month after month as they were hoping that the test would come back positive and that there was a baby in their future. And the years rolled by and then finally the years came to where they realized it's not going to happen. I'm sure there were some moments of frustration. I'm sure there were a lot of questions. Lord, why? Why are you allowing so-and-so to have a child and you, you, you won't grant it to us? And I'm sure they, they searched their heart. God, is, is there something we've done? Are you, are you angry? Have we disappointed you? And we already know that wasn't the case from verse number six. But I want you to understand that even though God had not given them what they asked for yet, they still served God. They didn't take their ball and go home because they didn't get their own way. I'm reminded of the text in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where the prophet Nathan and David the king were talking one night and David said, I dwell in a house of cedar and God dwells in a tent made with curtains on the outskirts of town. And what David was saying is, I think God had to have a nicer house than I do. And I think God have, ought to have a house at least made of cedars. And, and Nathan the prophet said, uh, do all that is in thine heart, the Lord is with thee. And, and Nathan, he meant well, but he didn't ask God about that. And David, I'm sure, was encouraged about that. Oh, great, I've got the blessing of the preacher uh, on my life and I'm gonna build God a temple. I'm gonna honor my God and, and show God how much I love him. And Nathan is on his way home and, and God tapped him on the shoulder and said, Nathan, you need to turn around and you need to undo that because I didn't send you with that message. And I want you to give David this message. David, I didn't call you to build me a house. I've never called anybody to build me a house. 
I told Moses to build a tent out of curtains and I would dwell there. David, I called you to be king. I called you to be a man of war. And that's what you've been. You've shed a lot of blood in your lifetime in establishing this kingdom. And I don't want you to build me a temple. But David, I'm going to let your son, who's going to come after you, I'm going to let him build the temple. And it'll be a great temple and I'll be glorified in that. But David, you don't get to do it. You understand that in that one message from God, David got a big fat no from the Lord. In one moment, he went from, I'm going to get to build God a temple. And, and this will be the greatest thing that I've ever done for my God. To all of a sudden, there's Nathan walking back in the door. Um, David, I misspoke. Uh, God asked me to come tell you he doesn't want you to build him a temple. He's not going to let you build him a temple, but your son will. Now, when we don't get our own way, how do we respond? Tommy was having some meltdowns this morning. Did, did you know that? I, I don't know what was going on. And he, he was trying to find his mommy and uh, she was in choir practice. And uh, so uh, he wasn't getting the answer he wanted. He tried to lock himself in the senior citizen's bathroom. It's like, Tommy, you're not even nine yet. You don't need that room. And uh, he, he was not having a, a, a real good moment because uh, mommy was elsewhere and so forth. It was time for him to go to children's church. And Tommy wasn't getting his way and he wasn't real happy. Now, I know sometimes we get frustrated with a child that's out of sorts just like that. But I wonder how many times we've been that way with God. God, you're not fixing my problem like you thought I would. I thought you would. God, you're not meeting my need, and I've been asking for the longest time, and, and, and it's not a bad thing, and it's not a selfish thing. It's a need, and you're not doing it. God, you're not answering my prayer, and we start getting mad and angry with God. Do you understand? David wanted to do a, a very good thing for God. He wanted to honor his God. David's heart, his motives were as pure as pure could be, but God said, no. The Bible tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that David went outside of town to where they had the tabernacle set up and he went in and the Bible says he sat before the Lord. He just sat down. He didn't stand. He didn't even fall on his face. He just sat down, sort of like he was real comfortable in God's presence. Are you comfortable in God's presence? Or after 20 or 30 seconds of prayer, do you find out that you've run out of things to say? David was comfortable and he just sat down in the presence of God and he said, Lord, who in the world am I? You picked me out of the sheepfolds and you made me ruler over your people and you've blessed what I've done in all of these wars and you've watched over me. And now you're speaking of how you're going to bless my son and how you're going to bless my family throughout all generations. And, and who in the world? And David just worshiped the Lord. He wasn't getting what he wanted, but he found out that what God wanted for him was even better. I have no greater joy than to hear that my, what is it, church? Children walk in truth. David said, you've spoken of my family for generations to come. And David worshiped. I want you to understand that Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth, they had lived for years of unanswered prayer. They had lived month by month with their hopes being dashed all over again. And finally, they faced the fact God's not giving us a son. 
God's not giving us a daughter. We will go to our graves childless. That's all it's ever going to be. But they did not quit on God just because they didn't understand him. The Bible says in verse 8, it came to pass that while he executed the priest office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest office, his lot was to burn incense when he went in uh, when, when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now, I have to give you a little history and background, and, and so please follow me. I'm not trying to bore you with details. According to the book of Numbers and also the book of Exodus, the men from the tribe of Levi that served in the priesthood did so from the age of 20 to 50. Okay, from the ages of 20 to 50. At the age of 50, they were to retire. They didn't do 65, they did 50. They were to retire. There was an exception, though, that if a man still wanted to serve, he could do so oftentimes in somewhat of a teaching capacity, preparing the next generation of young priests to come in and know how that they could serve. Now, the Bible says Zacharias and his wife were old. They were well stricken in age. I think we're on safe ground to say Zacharias had passed the 50-year mark. He could have just said, I'll just stay home. I'm done. I've done my thing. But there was something in him wanted to just keep serving God. And so here he was past the age of 50, and he was serving the Lord. Now, when they, the priests of Levi served according to rabbinical tradition, there were many jobs within the temple that needed to be done. Someone had to receive the animals that were brought in for sacrifice. Someone had to kill those animals and someone else had to catch the blood in a basin. Someone had to flay the animal according to the, the guidelines laid out in the book of Exodus. And they had, to, they had to take it and put it on this huge brass altar that, that probably was about four to five feet high above the ground. Sometimes that was just a little lamb and they would place it. They weren't allowed to just fling it. They had to place it. They probably stood on like a stepladder to get up there. But sometimes they were placing entire bullocks on that. Oftentimes that job was for the younger and the stronger of the men. Someone like Zacharias, that's why uh, it is believed that age of 50 was the cutoff because of the strength that it would take. There was a huge brazen laver, like a giant brass birdbath that had water and it was constantly filled and refilled all day long where the priest who killed the sacrifice would come and wash their hands, wash their feet. Those who would take the ashes out uh, through the course of the day and they'd have to haul them outside of town and dispose of them at, at a specific location and come back. They would have to wash and do that all over again. So what they did is they cast lots, sort of like drawing straws or something like that that we would think of today to decide who got what job. Now, the, the, the dirty jobs were in that outer courtyard. That's where you, you had to kill the sacrifice and shed the blood and put it on the altar, get rid of the ashes, uh, hauling that water in, getting rid of the dirty water and all of that. That was the hard, strenuous, uh, difficult, dirty work. But once you walked into the, the, the temple itself, there were two rooms. One was called the holy place 
And it was cut off from, from the outside world by this thick, heavy curtain. It was richly embroidered. And once you stepped in, that curtain was so thick, it was like soundproofing. The walls were of stone. They had, they had wood paneling around that. The, the wood was overlaid in gold. The floor was overlaid in gold. Uh, everything in this room shone with gold. There was a, a, a table sitting off to the side, uh, about the size of the Lord's Supper table sitting out in our hallway, table of showbread, and it was covered in gold. There was an altar called the altar of incense right in front of, as you walked into the holy place, uh, where they burned incense, which pictured the prayers, not only of Christ, our intercessor, but Revelation chapter eight, verse three said they also pictured the prayers of the saints. Then standing over here was this giant golden candlestick, a menorah. Uh, that was probably about eight or 10 feet tall. Um, and that's what gave light in here. So everything's got this golden glimmer to it. it. It had to have been an amazing room to step into, but it was utterly quiet. Once the priest came in through that curtain and it closed behind him and he was there doing his duties, all the noise of the outside world was cut off. You see, they were coming into the presence of God. If you're going to come into the presence of God, can I submit to you, you're going to have to shut off the things of the world. You're going to shut off the TV and the tablets and the phone, and you're going to just kind of have to come aside into a desert place and be still and know that he is God. So they would go in there. They were still casting lots. The holy place, in the holy place, you were allowed to serve one time in a lifetime. So... If, if Brother Rob was a priest and, and he's, how old are you now? He is 33 years of age and the lot was cast and he was to go in and, and arrange the bread on the table of showbread. He would do that for seven days in one week and then that was it. You'd never be going back in there again. It's, it's a once in a lifetime ministry. No, he could still serve out in the outer courtyard with, with the heavy, the dirty, the bloody, the messy work. But man, going into the holy place, it was once. It was said that for the altar of incense, you got to serve once and never again. Now think about this. Zacharias was an elderly man. He'd been serving in the temple since he was 20 years of age. But never one time did the lot fall to him to go into the holy place. And not only that, uh, he, he could have gotten the lot to go into the candlestick and, and trim the, the, the wicks on that or the other, but it was the altar of incense where he was sent, the place that pictured the prayers of the saints. And remember, there had been a prayer that he had stopped praying, and he's about to find out that that prayer did go up and God heard it, and God saw, and God had a plan do you understand that if Zacharias would have quit because God wasn't doing things his way? God wasn't providing in his timetable. And God, that's just not fair. My wife and I have served you all these years and, and still you wouldn't let us have a child. And I just don't understand. And he'd have just taken his ball and stormed home. Do you understand what he'd have missed? Because in the providence of God, that once in a lifetime moment came that year when the lot was cast to who would go in to burn incense on the altar of incense. It just coincidentally fell to Zacharias. By the way, there are no coincidences with God. 
Luck has nothing to do with it. It's all directed by the mighty hand of Almighty God. So he goes into the temple. His lot was to burn incense. When he went into the temple of the Lord, the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. Uh, Some believe this might have been at nine o'clock in the morning. They offered incense in the morning and the evening, possibly the time of prayer. Verse 11, there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. He was supposed to be in there by himself. They had very strict laws governing the holy place and the holy of holy, holies uh, where the Ark of the Covenant was and the high priest alone could go in on one day of the year. They guarded that and there were no side doors, there were no back doors, there were no windows and so forth. And so his lot was to go in and burn incense and he walks in, the golden candlestick is, is a flame over here and, and everything's lit with that beautiful golden sheen of all that wealth and splendor uh, representing the deity of God himself and he he walks in and there on the right side of the the altar the Bible says um, there appeared an angel of the Lord standing on the right side yo Zacharias how many have ever somebody's walked up on you and you didn't know they were coming and they tapped you on the shoulder and you just about jumped out of your skin it ever happened to you uh, or you walked into a room where you thought it was empty and somebody said, hey, how are you? And you just about passed out. Um, uh, can you imagine Zacharias in such a holy situation? All of a sudden, there's an angel. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. I would have been exactly the same way. And so would you and I. He's never I'm sure he's never seen an angel before. Um, but understand the history of his people is filled with God speaking and appearing in, in, in many ways. God who had, at diverse times in, in sundry manners spake in time past uh, to the fathers by the prophets, Hebrews chapter 1 says. And all of a sudden he's got this angel speaking to him. Verse 13, the angel said unto him, fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. Thy wife Elizabeth shall bear, bear thee a son, thou shalt call his name John. John means God is gracious or God is gracious and merciful. Your prayers heard. Your prayers heard. This message is delivered by the hand of an angel. The means is miraculous. The message is miraculous. But this good man, this righteous man, this faithful man doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe it. The angel's going to describe the, the birth of this child. Thou shalt have joy and gladness. How many were joy, joyful and glad when your children or grandchildren were born? I was standing at this door this morning, and Mr. Banowitz was standing in this aisle with Anna, and she had my grandson Wesley in her arms. And I'm positive he was staring all the way across the room at me, and he recognized me. And there's just something about seeing him brings a lot of joy and gladness. Um, man, when God answers a prayer, I hope you lift up your voice in praise to God. Uh, it ought to bring joy and gladness to you. He said, and many shall rejoice at his birth. He's going to be the cause of joy to a lot of people for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. What a promise for a child. He shall be great in the sight of the Lord. Years later, the savior would talk about John, the one that it was, whose birth was being predicted here. Jesus said, verily, I say unto you among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. 
God fulfilled his word and he said, You're gonna, your wife's going to have a child. Uh, he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. Shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. John the Baptist may have been a Nazarite. From birth, he was going to be marked for everyone to see that, that not only was he a miracle child born when his parents were older, but he has a plan of God set in place for him as in Nazareth, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. We'll look at that statement a little later on. Look at verse 16. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. He's going to bring revival. Now, time is sliding away from us rapidly today. I want to remind you one more thing about this event of Scripture. When the prophet Malachi, the last prophet in, of the Old Testament, laid down his pen after he wrote Malachi chapter 4, that was the last time God was going to speak for 400 years. Oh, they still have his word that was given up to then, what we call the Old Testament, but there'd be no new revelation. They're called in history the silent years. They're also called the dark years years. During those 400 years, Israel would be conquered and resettled by nation and empire after empire over and over again. Sometimes they would dwell somewhat peaceably and other times they would have to hide in, in, in caves and dens and they would be slaughtered upon sight. Uh, what we're seeing in the Middle East right now with Hamas and all of that, that's nothing new. That's been Israel's history for millennia. And by the way, it's going to stay that way till Jesus comes and rules and reigns and sets the record straight. Please understand that. But it's nothing new. That had been, uh, that, that had all that had been going on. And the people prayed and the people said, God, where are you? And why aren't you going to do something about this? Do you understand that that day in the holy place, that was the first time God had spoken to man in 400 years. What a moment. God's talking to us again. The angel gives this wonderful promise. He's going to bring revival. He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias. That's a Greek way of saying Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He's actually quoting Malachi chapter four, the last two verses promised that Elijah was going to come and do just that. And he said, and that's what your boy is going to be. This is an amazing day for Zacharias. If that would have been me, I'd have been saying, man, I can't wait to get home and tell Trina about this. Oh, she is going to be so excited. And, and, and I, I would just be trying to think, how oh, I'm going to break it to her. Am I just going to tell her? Uh, am I going to put her on a scavenger hunt? She has to find clues. Uh, what am I going to? I've been so excited. But notice Zechariah in verse 18, whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife well stricken in years. Now, this seems like a pretty logical question. Uh, do, do you know how old I am? Do you know how old my wife is? How, how, whereby shall I know this? This wasn't, though, an honest searching question of a man saying, boy, this is exciting, but how in the world can this be? This was a question out of total unbelief. 
This man that had walked with God his entire life, when God says your prayer is finally heard and it's going to happen, it's going to be a miracle, it's going to fulfill scripture. That man who knew his own history, Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. Sarah was 90 years old when Isaac was born. Um, Isaac and Rebekah, she was barren and Isaac had to pray for his wife. Rachel, Jacob's uh, youngest uh, uh, and favorite wife, she was barren for years and years and years until the Lord opened her womb. Um, then there was uh, Samson's parents that had no children and God miraculously, miraculously sent an angel and said, it's going to happen. Hannah went year after year after year with no child until the word of the Lord came there and said, you're going to have a son. And uh, that's part of Zachariah's history. But all of a sudden he's not believing God anymore. Oh, th this is too hard. I, I could have seen it when we were in our 30s, maybe our 40s, but we're way beyond that. It's impossible for us. See, Zacharias was like a whole, whole bunch of us. We're letting our situation become the measuring stick of our faith. But read your Bible. Oftentimes, God let situations get to where it was no longer possible in human terms for this to come to pass. And then God said, Okay, boys, step back. Let me show you what I can do. That's the way God works. Zacharias, maybe he thought, well, I know God did it for Abraham, but he can't do it for me. Do you ever feel that way? Well, God would answer so-and-so's prayers, but not mine. Do you understand? That's unbelief. That's unbelief. You say, how do you know this was a prayer of unbelief? Look, please, at verse 19. The angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God. And I'm sent to speak unto thee and to show, these, uh, show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb. That means in, unable to speak, not able to speak until the day that those things shall be performed. Because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. Here's a man that served God all of his life. He didn't get the answer to prayer and he, he just assumed that that just wasn't what God was going to do, but he served God faithfully. Now, all of a sudden, God says, Zacharias, let me show you what I'm going to do for you and your wife. God, I don't believe you. God, I don't believe you can. God, I don't believe you will. And the angel said, oh, yes, I, oh, yes God can. And oh, yes, he will. But you don't get to tell anybody about it. I'm going to strike you dumb. You'll not be able to talk until the day that that baby is born. Did you know that the Bible calls unbelief the sign of an evil heart? When God makes a promise in his word, when God gives a command in his word, we say, well, I know the Bible says, but do you understand that's unbelief? We are calling God a liar. And he's, he is just and true. That's what unbelief is in the sight of God. And we see this great man struggling with his faith. But as we close this morning, I also see that God is still a merciful God. He knows Zacharias struggling with his faith and he knows why. God's not happy with it. That's why he, Zacharias was, was stricken dumb for the next nine months or so. He's not going to be able to talk much about it. He might be able to write a little of the message down, but, but his tongue won't be loose till he holds that child in his hand. But you understand, and in spite of... Zacharias struggled with faith. God was still faithful. Aren't you glad about that? I'm reminded of the man who had a boy possessed with a demon. And Jesus said, believest thou that I can do this? 
and the man just was open and honest, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. As we close this morning, this is how Luke opens the teaching of the Christmas story about this amazing couple. They had this, this, this spotless testimony before God. They had a prayer that went unanswered, but they did not stop serving God. They did not allow it to affect their spirit. And yet when Zacharias is confronted with the fulfillment of the promise, he's beyond belief to the point of unbelief. Yet God was still kind and gracious to him. Aren't you glad that that's our God? That doesn't mean that God's okay with us responding in unbelief, but I'm sure glad that God's willing to work with us and help our faith grow. Can we bow our heads for prayer this morning?